the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Welcome to another edition of the Spot Track Podcast. My name is Mike Gennetti. It is Monday, June 5th. Waking up from game two of the NBA Finals. We're going to start there. We're going to bounce around uh, quite a bit today. Four or five different avenues, different channels, sort of a weekend recap. Plenty of money talk out there. We got an NFL contract to break down. We have some quarterback movements to talk about. I'm going to talk Oakland A's <laughs> um, because I feel like they're being lost in translation right now, maybe literally and metaphorically. And uh, a little golf. Recap what we saw this weekend at the Memorial. But uh, as promised here, the NBA is all locked up. I generally uh, stay away from the analysis side of things because there are millions and millions of channels for that out there. But I've been watching this season so closely and honestly, this Heat team so closely. Um, I'm going to get to a couple of odds, but I want to comment on Eric Spolster's comments after the game. I got a little testy. And uh, I have a feeling that this is not something that's going to be said too much today. But I want to get it out into the stratosphere because uh, strategically, and I have a feeling that's all Eric Spolster knows. Right? Is uh, this guy's a grinder, just an absolute X and O nerd, a matchup nerd, an analysis analytical nerd, and look, he's going to walk into the Hall of Fame because of it. So he was asked about Jokic and the success rate that they feel like they may have had in limiting his playmaking yesterday versus 41 points. And essentially what kind of outcome he thinks that got. And is that something they can stick with? And he basically shot back and said, look, the plan was, you know, he he got testy into into the point of saying, there is no stopping this player. He's a great player, blah, blah, blah. Here's, here's where I think his head was. I mean, if you watch that game closely, and I'm sure you have, uh, if you're an NBA fan, and if you watch this series closely, and if you've watched the Heat closely for the past two months now in this postseason, the difference yesterday, and I, I said this to myself maybe four or five times throughout the game, what appears to be happening from an offensive standpoint is that Eric Spolstra is asking Bam Adebayo to be Jokic, to stand at the top of the key, to stand at the top of the three-point line and facilitate the offense, whether it's 2v2, whether it's off a pick and roll, whether it's straight take the ball to the hoop, whether it's pop and stop, there's a hell of a lot going on through Bam, not through Jimmy, not through Kyle Lowry, not through any of the traditional ball handlers on that team, which is how Denver runs their offense. Now, there is no A-B comparison between those two players. I think Bam has taken massive steps forward offensively in the past few months here. I think he's being asked to do so from a game plan standpoint. And I I have a feeling that the plan is to fight fire with fire, not so much stop Jokic, build a team that looks like that with whatever roster they have available, you know, and it's not, that's not a pound for pound roster, you know, roster comparison right now, but it worked yesterday. It worked. It forced the Joker to come out to that three-point line. It allowed Duncan Robinson and Jimmy Butler and those likes to slash and get fouled and accumulate frustration with Denver. So I think the angst that Eric Spolster has isn't 
we did a hell of a job stopping the Joker. They didn't. Okay. The fact that the Joker had three or whatever, five assists yesterday might've just been an anomaly. It might've been, they frustrated the hell out of that guy. And I would say from a defensive standpoint, from a foul standpoint, from a, a gameplay standpoint, and it turned him into that kid on the playground you hate that was just putting his head down and going to the hoop or putting his head down and saying, my ball, my shot, which is not what he is. So instead of saying defensively, we matched up against him, I, I don't believe that's the case. I believe Eric Spolstra outcoached the hell out of that game yesterday with Denver's philosophy and using Bam Adebayo as the linchpin. And I think that's something sustainable. Now, are they going to continue to hit those, those threes at that rate? No, 52%. Ridiculous. Are they going to frustrate Denver every game? Probably not. That's the only change Michael Malone has to make going forward. Okay? We just have to keep our composure, and they cannot beat us. They, they, they damn near didn't beat, it, beat them yesterday, even really kind of matching up against them pound for pound. That's how good Denver is. It's how deep Denver is. Michael Porter Jr. hits one three yesterday. This game's different, obviously. So I don't think it's a slam dunk. But with that said, Miami's still plus 225 right now to win this series. Is there ever a team that you think at least has an inkling of a chance more than this Miami team? Every single way down the path, they've been massive underdogs. They've They've been blown out here and there, like in game one, and they've crawled right back into it. Now, can they get to the finish line here? I don't know. But if you've got some house money or some <laughs> promo money sitting in your DraftKings account right now, I, I'd, throw, I'd throw some promo money on two, plus 225 from Miami because if any team's going to do it, it's this team with that coach. Again, the roster comparison isn't fair. Okay, It's A to Z right now. But there's a couple of guys out there and there's a cup and there's enough guys that if they get hot like they did last night, enough, they're sustainable. And that coach is not going to let them falter. So I I think that this is less about Eric Spolster being a dick to the media, because I don't think that's a norm for him. And I think it's more about we're sick of talking about Denver. Okay. We just played Denver's game and beat him. And he's looking for a little respect out there. And I Certainly last night, he deserves it. So again, a little bit of a off-base analysis for me from a coaching standpoint, from a structural standpoint. It's also a betting conversation. That's a team I'm betting on right there, all right? Because I believe that that took a hell of a lot of balls last night to go out there and use Bam and Abayo in the Joker role and beat them at their own game. I don't know if it's sustainable. I think Denver's a much, much better roster but I would throw some promo money on that and run with it. Speaking of which, the current NBA Finals MVP odds, of course, it's Jokic still, the minus 230 favorite. Jimmy Butler's a plus 450. He doesn't look like he's going to have that kind of role. Bam's plus 500. There's a world. There's certainly a world. If there's three more games like we saw last night where he's facilitating the offense and making an impact defensively at the rim, right? If he's got one 20 rebound game in him coming up here, he's going to be in this conversation. Now, plus 500 is not the best odds in the world, but if you're looking for plus, that's a plus. Uh, Jamal Murray, plus 3,500. He's two up and down right now. And then Gabe Vincent, plus 4,000. Those are your at least attainable options right now. There's a, 
there's a conversation to be had here if you want to throw some money on Miami. There's no question about it. And five to one on Bam is at least worth, again, a couple of promo dollars to uh, to wet your belt there a little bit. Okay, that's it. I'm going to just continue to watch and enjoy and not try to break down too much game tape because, like I said, there are plenty of channels for that out there. But I uh, just wanted to respond to a lot I've been hearing from last night and this morning. And uh, that's my two cents in terms of where this thing might be headed. Another NFL contract in our books here. It is Ed Oliver with the Buffalo Bills, the defensive tackle from our first round pick. It's a big day for the Bills. Groundbreaking the new stadium, uh, announcing retained naming rights for that stadium, signing Leonard Floyd away from the Rams on a one-year contract, officially signing Ed Oliver to this four-year extension. Uh, Josh Allen may be announced as the Madden 2024 cover, which is probably not good news for Bills fans if you understand what's the Madden cover has been for two decades now. Uh, but let's talk Ed Oliver here. This one absolutely surprised me. I've been going on radio show after radio show talking about Ed Oliver as a trade candidate, as a one and done candidate in Buffalo. So of course, days and hours later, the Bills announce a $45 million guaranteed contract for him. Full disclosure, I am commenting right now without breakdown information. And you know, I don't like to do that. I'm simply going to reference where this thing currently stands. But do I believe that $45 million is fully guaranteed at signing? I don't. I'd be shocked if that was the actual case because to me, that means three years at 15 per year. Now, let's talk about this average salary. It's $17 million per year on base. Okay, It's four for 68 uh, tacked on to the, to the fifth year option. So I think it's five for 78-ish, uh, I believe, in total here. So in that in that regard, the forty five million practically guaranteed over three years is fair. Let's call it fair. Let's just talk about seventeen million per year. If we're looking at the other contracts that have hit from defensive tackles thus far, Dexter Lawrence almost twenty two million per year. Deron Payne twenty two and a half million per year. Jeffrey Simmons twenty three and a half million per year. Okay, obviously, well above this Ed Oliver number. Free agent-wise, Javon Hargrave in San Fran, $21 million per year. <clears throat> Delvin Tomlinson, who, who's got you know age and, and wear and tear on his body, 14 and change per year with Cleveland. All right? And we've got three more contracts that I believe are about to hit within the next two and a half months. Chris Jones, probably a restructured deal in Kansas City. That's a $30 million per year contract. That's an, that's an Aaron Donald light contract. Quinny Williams is a light version of that. All right. The last four or five names I mentioned here have risen his value up to 27 and change. There's a world where he's a $30 million defensive tackle for the Jets who don't have a lot of mouths to feed right now. And Christian Wilkins, another AFC East uh, defensive tackle for the Miami Dolphins, who's been on par with Ed Oliver in terms of the inconsistencies. Uh, he's a tackle monster. He's a run-stopping monster. That generally doesn't pay. But he's done enough over three plus years here to generate almost $20 million per year in terms of market value, especially with all these other names I've mentioned here and all these other contracts that have hit. So Oliver at 17, and let's say it's 15 with, with guaranteed AAV. Let's say it's two for 33 for 45, and it's heavily backloaded, right? And this was about getting a contract on the book so that there was a viable starting option on the books for 2024 for Buffalo, which doesn't currently exist. It's a lot of one-year veteran minimum contracts. Players, contributors for sure, but Buffalo sort of went 
they limped into that position this offseason, and I think rightfully so, because there's a world where one of their higher draft picks next year revolves around this position, uh, unless that position needs to be the wide receiver, which is certainly going to be a situation. Um, am I surprised by this contract? I, I think I buried that lead already. I'm surprised. So how do I poke holes or how do I, how do I get myself into a positive situation with this? If I'm, if I'm a bills fan and I'm freaking out at 45 million guaranteed, that's fine. It's not your money. So right? if Terry Pagula wants to do this on the day that he, uh, breaks ground on $1.6 billion, uh, we'll see. I think this was about motivating a player <laughs> with money. And I know that sounds crazy, but we see it in the NBA a lot, which I believe is the, is the from a player standpoint, the healthiest financial league we have in America. And we see teams literally throw millions of dollars at players to, to get them to go, to get them to rise to the next level. There's a world where Sean McDermott, the head coach of the Buffalo Bills, who now takes over this defense after Leslie Frazier stepped aside here temporarily or secretly, wink, wink, forcefully, whatever it is. There's a world where McDermott, who was a defensive line coach in Carolina and made his stake with that very quickly when he moved here to Buffalo, bringing Starla Tule on a crazy overpaid contract that they had to buy out eventually. There's a world where we're back at square one with that. And that Ed Oliver is now that new poster boy for this, that they believe that there's still a world where this guy can be in the Jeffrey Simmons conversation, which is a lot to ask. I mean, he is 40% of what Jeffrey Simmons is from a production standpoint right now. That's where he is. He is more of a first round bust than a first round extendable player. There's no question. And I don't think too many people would argue that point with me. But is the ceiling still there? Sure. Is a change in defensive philosophy probably going to benefit him, especially with a guy in charge now who knows exactly how to run a defensive line? Yep. Are they for, are the Bills as a whole, McDermott being the works, are they foreshadowing the possibility that after Quinn and Williams and Chris Jones and Christian Wilkins sign contracts, and 2023 plays out with a better situation for Oliver where he should succeed and should produce. Are they foreshadowing a situation where they were, they were going to have to use a franchise tag, a high franchise tag, okay, just to keep the negotiation process intact? And with a team that's all in, that's you know marginally around $1 million in cap space now and less next year before restructures, they don't want to get into that situation. They don't want to get themselves into a situation where they're restructuring players just to assign a franchise tag. And I get that. And oh, by the way, if this guy really does take two more steps up the ladder this year, which is probably the mindset, it's not 17 million anymore. Okay. It's minimum 22, right? You're back on Darren Payne's number. Wherever Christian Wilkins ends up, is a low floor, the foundation. Because like I said, there's some comparisons there. There's a lot of comparisons between those two players there. And if you've got two players at 30 million and Jones and Donald and Quinn and Williams may be right there, tier two is 26 million. So 
there's a pretty clear world, pretty clear path to the Bills not signing this contract, having to squeeze on a defensive tackle franchise tag, and then having to talk themselves on or off the cliff of $25 million a year for Ed Oliver next year because of a one-year situation. And you know why I'm going down this route with this conversation? Because they just had it with Tremaine Edmonds. <laughs> like, like literally verbatim this exact situation. They didn't really believe that, that he was the guy for years because the decision-making wasn't there. The run-stopping wasn't there. It just wasn't a complete package, even though that's certainly what he was drafted to be, the center of that defense and the total package player. He put it together at the end of year four and certainly through his, his fifth-year option year last season. He put it all together. And Buffalo for sure wanted to keep that player around. But they knew because they didn't have him under contract that A, they weren't going to be able to squeeze that franchise tag and they didn't even try a transition tag. And B, that they were going to get crushed on the open market and free agency. And the Chicago Bears crushed them. Four for 72, 50 million fully guaranteed at signing. Okay, Buffalo's not touching that. They don't want round two of that. And, you know, if you think the defensive tackle is worth more than the inside line, you know, Right now, it's pretty much pound for pound. Okay, Roquan Smith and Tremaine Edmonds both destroyed that inside linebacker market, that off-ball linebacker market this offseason. It's not going to slow down. There's great players out there. All right? But you're talking $20 million a year versus what could be 25 to 30 for Tier 2 uh, for a pass-rushing defensive tackle. All Ed Oliver has to do is increase his pass-rush production. Okay, everything else is at least in the conversation with these names, the Paynes, the Dexter Lawrences, the Hargraves, the Christian Wilkins. And he's a 20 million plus per year player, minimum. And like I said, when it's all said and done after 2023, 20 becomes 25 pretty quickly in this league, as we've seen with quarterback money, as we've seen with wide receiver money, kind of overnight. So the Bills are simply betting on the fact that they can structure a defense that, that, that allows him to produce more, and that if this guy will agree to a deal right now in, in the current market for his current value, which it is, you know, I've got him at 11, but let's be frank about what a first round pick is going to get. Okay. They had to go to this route, probably 15 million per year on guarantees just to get him to think about it. And he took it. Is it a disaster for the next two seasons, right? 24 and 25. Did they, are they overpaying what? 5 million extra this year on guarantees and 30 million totally guaranteed over the next three seasons, maybe, but it's a risk they want to take because if it does work out, even if it's average, that's what this contract says. This contract says you have not exceeded expectations and you are not a top of the market player at your position. This contract says you are, you are an average player at your position but based on who you are coming into this league and based on what we think we can get out of you, your ceiling is worth $45 million practically guaranteed to us. That's all it says. Okay, that's all it says. Jeffrey Simmons got 60. Deron Payne got 60. Dexter Lawrence got 60. Those are the numbers. Chris Jones is going to get at least 60 on two years. He's going to get three for 92 for 60. Quinton Williams is probably going to get more than 60 million practically guaranteed because of his age. So. That's the top number, the 60 million. So is 45 too crazy? No. 45 says you're, you're average and we think you can be above average. That's it. So Bills fans, I'm trying to talk you off a cliff here. Uh, the timing's weird. You know, there's a world where 
They're using this at Oliver extension to free up four or five million of cap space to fit in Leonard Floyd, the, the, the contract we heard about this morning, which will be official by the end of the day. That's understandable. Again, the bills are running out like one million of space, razor thin margins. So there was going to be some up and down. And at the end of the day, and I've, I've said this over and over, I said this on, on Buffalo shows, on national shows, Brandon Bean's not a restructure guy. And he's made about a half dozen cap conversions this offseason, which has to be grinding him. He's probably grinding pens into his desk right now doing this. He hates it. It's just not his philosophy. He said it out loud. So rather than do that to fit Leonard Floyd in, and rather than do that to fill out your offseason roster, he'd rather just pay a player. Okay, if the if the Bagulas were ready to put up this money, and they did, for Ed Oliver, kind of a wait and see, forty five million. That's a way better way for Brandon Bean to, to establish cap space, fortify a roster spot for next year, and take a two year flyer on a player that should work out if Sean McDermott can fix that defensive line, which has been a revolving door mess for the better part of three seasons now. So that's the grand scheme of things. Again, we will break this contract down more, and I'll do a kind of a comparison like I did, but with actual numbers between Oliver's deal and Lawrence's deal and Simmons deal. And uh, I think that Quinn and Williams contract's coming soon. Uh, real side note, little asterisk on that one. Aaron Rodgers is still a minimum salary player for the Jets right now. Literally 1.165 million. It's been a blessing for the Jets because the cap is absolute peanuts. So it's helped them operate. Not that they've made splashy signings and things like that, but because that exists right now, you can fit in a pretty nice, fresh, sizable Quinn and Williams contract and then deal with Aaron Rodgers because there's no rush. No, nothing has to happen until week one with that option bonus. And they're going to rip it all up and start over. So Aaron Rodgers is affording the Jets the time and the cap room to operate with some of these contracts. And I have a feeling that the Williams deal is coming. But if they're trying to add Oliver that situation, let's put it that way, uh, they got a long time coming with this. Because like I said, that's a... Chris Jones light, a, an Aaron Jones light light contract. And in my opinion, it's going to be the, the, the third biggest defensive tackle contract in the history of football. That's what the Jets are facing right now. They have all the assets and the resources to do it. It's simply a matter of will they give in and get this, give this guy the money he's due. All right, sp sticking with the Bills here quickly. They broke ground on their stadium this morning. I'm going to highlight some of these numbers real quick. It's scheduled to open in 2026. It's going to cost... We think $1.4 billion, obviously, with inflation. And we've all had work done in our house. You know how this works. It starts off at $5,000 and ends up at $5,500 pretty quickly. Uh, who knows where this number ends up? Most of these stadiums go over budget. Let's be perfectly frank. Um, the big number here is $850 million, which is the taxpayer buy-in, the public funding for this, for this deal. It's the largest public-funded number in the history of NFL stadiums, which is wild. Because Buffalo is and has been one of the smallest markets in the NFL for forever. <laughs> okay. So uh, it's, I wouldn't say it's a sore spot around here because everybody around here locally is excited for the, for the new stadium. I think there are a pretty strong contingent of people that didn't think it was necessary, but you know how this works. The NFL gets on you and uh, you know, what guarantees you a draft will happen here or something like that. You know, it's not going to be a Super Bowl here, but a draft for sure. And you start to rally around it a little bit. Um, so the 850 is the big number and that's not going anywhere. I can guarantee you that that's been signed, sealed and delivered. 
some comparisons. If I, I just went back to 2010 with NFL stadiums and, and their costs and public funding here. Vegas, Allegiant Stadium, cost $2 billion, right around there at least, with $750 coming in public funding. And that's Vegas. <laughs> okay, so Buffalo's got $100 million on them in public funding coming. SoFi Stadium in LA, um, you know, kind of the NFL headquarters now, right? $5 billion to, to make it, not a dollar came from the public. LA is LA, and uh, they operate in a different wavelength than the rest of the world here. Atlanta, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, Cost 1.6 with 700 million. So again, you know, cost more, public paid less. U.S. Bank in Minnesota, they've had their issues with it, but 1.1 billion, only 350 of public funding on that one. So that's a really nice deal for the taxpayers. And I believe I just read, they've already paid that lease off or that lo the loan they took, the construction loan they took out, like some 20 years early. So taxpayers are actually getting refunded because the the plan, the accrued accrued plan that was built into this thing has been expedited and ripped up. So what the taxpayers thought they were going to be paying over the next 20 years, two decades, is now gone and put away. So the Vikings have actually saved their public a ton of money, literally a ton of money. Uh, so that's good news from there. Maybe that can happen in Buffalo, I'm going to guess, based on the landscape I see around me and the economy I see around me. That's not going to be the case. But you never know. Levi Stadium in San Fran, 1.3 billion, only 114 million publicly funded. There was a ton of private loan there, as you might imagine. It's a sweet-driven kind of uh, stadium. And MetLife in New York, uh, just like LA, 1.6 to build it, zero dollars publicly funded. Tons of private equities built into that, and, and sold some stakes in it to uh, allow that stadium to be built in 2010. Coming up, Tennessee has announced a two billion plus stadium. In Nashville, 500 million of that's going to be publicly funded, at least right now. That's a phenomenal number. I mean, phenomenal. To go 20% on that, that's just uh, ridiculous. <clears throat> Chicago's coming. Washington's coming. Both have major logistical question marks. Um, at least in Washington's case, the ownership is figured out. So negotiations with uh, real estate and, and Maryland and things like that should improve. And that should come together pretty quickly. And that, by the way, that should be one of the biggest stadiums in, in the country. One of the best stadiums in the country, I should say, because of proximity, location, because of where it is. Um, and that's a franchise that has to be resurrected. It's just too important to the NFL not to be. Chicago is work, working out either to go residential or more uh, uh, urban, which the, the Bills had to go through for quite a bit. There was a, a large, large, large contingency who to this day remain that wanted that stadium to be in the city of Buffalo, downtown. And the unbelievable cost, the logistical cost to, you know, reroute highways and build in parking and reroute mass transit. And, and there was just so much into it. That, I mean, the scopes were incredible. You were talking about another billion dollars minimum just in getting this thing drivable and usable and yada, yada. So keeping it in Orchard Park where the land was owned by the county and literally building this thing across the street saved hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> so uh, while it's a great idea to urbanize these kind of things, and there are some cities that have phenomenal layouts with these, to build a you know round peg in a square hole in this day and age, in this climate with construction costs and everything going on, it's just not, it's just not feasible. There's a conversation about 
how big these stadiums should be in the first place. And, you know, with gambling and the streaming experience, which is where a lot of these dollars are going, by the way, right? Are fans really motivated to get to stadiums that much anymore? I think that's going to be a big, big conversation. It has been for a while, but is that conversation going to continue to pick up speed? We'll see. You know, we'll see. I, I think the the A's conversation in Vegas, which is, I believe, about 30,000 on that stadium max, that's probably right. I think we should be downsizing the max capacity, which if you start selling them out, now they become exclusive, you know, exclusive seats. Now, now there's a there's a chance that you can't even get a ticket to see the Oakland A's in Las Vegas. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, speaking of which, let's transition. The Oakland A's released Jesus Aguilar yesterday, officially after DFA and him a couple of days back. He had a $3 million salary. He had the fifth highest salary on the team at the time. All right. You know, you've, you've been beaten to death with the A's financial conversation. But it's worth discussing as these Vegas conversations happen. There's a, there are a lot of smart people that I follow that, I, that have thrown some threads out there recently that said this Vegas stuff is just smoke and mirrors and that it is simply to ramp up positive energy and improve the marketability of this franchise because the owner actually wants to sell. And there are buyers lined up and it would stay on the West Coast and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that that is the genesis of this conversation. I think relocation still is possible. I will say this though. I think there's a minute but possible chance that the Oakland A's are simply sold, that negotiations with Oakland restart with the new ownership, and that that actually has some legs to stay in Oakland, to find a new stadium, again, a smaller comfortable stadium in Oakland that desperately needs a professional sports team because they have been gutted with basketball and football and that that new owner sees the proximity to San Francisco and and where it is as value and that Vegas, they're not going to get screwed. Don't worry. We'll go ahead with that stadium right on the strip there by the win. And we'll push for an expansion team, which I believe Major League Baseball still wants. And Nashville and Vegas as, you know, an, an AL and NL expansion team over the next couple of years, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing. So I, I, I do think there, that possibility exists. And I've, again, I've read some pretty smart threads from people that say this is in the, in, in the works. There are, there's literally a buyer sitting there waiting for Oakland to turn the corner on this entire situation. And uh, I would not be surprised. By the way, I think I'd be pleased with that outcome. Oakland remains. They just get a new new stadium and an owner that's motivated to start to build this team. And Vegas gets a team, puts that nice stadium in there, you know, expands their professional sports prowess. And baseball goes to 32 teams with Nashville getting the other one. I, I think that's logical. So probably will never happen because that's not how professional sports ever works. But wanted to throw that out there as well. The Oakland A's have a $59 million payroll, which by the way, kind of high for them over the past decade. They've, they've been in the thirties last year. They were in the 44s. Uh, there was a 90 in 2011 or a 2021, excuse me, when they were pushing, they've done this before. Um, 
11 million of this is on their IL right now. Four and a half million of this has been bought out money in season here, right? They've got 9 million of guaranteed money in the minor leagues right now. Just players they don't even want up here because they're trying not to win games, obviously. Uh, their 26-man payroll is second lowest to the Reds, who have just been decimated by, by injuries, You know, much of that Joey Votto salary. But they're a $42 million 26-man payroll. They're a $59 million total financial roster right now. Uh, obviously, the lowest in the league. It's the lowest by $7 million. It's almost $300 million less than the Mets. It's 250 less than the Yankees. We know how this works right now. You've heard it, afore, heard it before. My point is this. And by the way, they're terrible. And they're trying to be terrible. They're the worst team in baseball by a mile and a half. There's a .197 winning percentage right now. So anything, you know, under three, not great. Under two, you are tanking. I guess they're still spending $60 million. Right? Is there a silver lining in that? That they're, if they're going to be this bad, at least they have to spend some money to be this bad because they're not spending 30. You know, like I said, there were a few years here in the 40s and 30s for this franchise on total payroll uh, and not too long ago either. So has the new CBA helped? I think so. I think the, the increase in minimum salary, uh, the, the jump up to 26 men, not 25 men. Now, they're not even carrying a 40-man roster right now. They're carrying a 39. And that's perfectly within their right. But they are trying like hell to lose ball games, And they're still spending $60 million, $80 million in tax payroll. So I think we're taking the right steps forward. Should we have a 350 and a 60? Should that be the range of payrolls? No. Uh, we talked about this at nauseum during the CBA negotiations. They did not implement a floor. I believe that the, that the pressure from the sport around it might help because look, that I, we can say Twitter's the worst. It's the worst. Twitter has made decisions in professional sports. There's no question in my mind that ownership and front offices, maybe not actual GMs, but you know, the people that it's their job to research and to A-B test and to gauge fan experiences and reactions and marketability, right? And all the valuations that come with that from being able to sell advertising, et cetera, et cetera. All that's extremely fragile right now because of the social media era, era we live in. Baltimore got their shit together, right? They're a $66 million payroll, second lowest in the league. But they've done this through the draft, the absolute hardest way to do this. And you know that within the next 18 months, Dan's been on here talking to me about it. They're going to pour a couple hundred million dollars into their youth. It's going to happen. Okay, Adley Russian's going to get a historic catching contract. It's going to happen. I imagine some of the pitching that's growing into the, developing into this team is going to get paid at some point in time, probably the closer first. So they're quickly going to be $100 million before it's all said and done on the payroll, which is going to make them, you know, 23rd, 24th. High for them, but in a healthy place for the league. It's going to take Oakland because that the, the draft pool is just not there. They're, they're essentially starting back over. And, you know, you can read all the, all the minor league, con, you know, prospect pool contracts you want. They don't have what Tampa has and what Cleveland has and even what Pittsburgh and Baltimore have. 
and Cincinnati who have started to turn a corner as well. Those are your, those are your bottom payrolls in the league right now. Oakland is in a different world, in a different world. And it's because the ownership has simply given up. So we can talk about the fact that they're not trying, but not only are they not trying to spend money right now, even though 60 million sell a good chunk of change. To me, they, they haven't even put the effort in to get themselves back on the right track, the track that Houston took years to, do, to get back onto. Baltimore, Pittsburgh now. The Cincinnati track, which has only been a couple of years. I mean, that team was competitive three, four years ago. They had to rip all the veterans out. They're letting Joey Votto retire kind of honorably. And they're going to get themselves infused with a couple of great pitchers and certainly a couple of position players who are already on the roster right now. Oakland's not on that track. And that's what scares me the most. And I don't think a relocation is going to change that. I do think an ownership change is going to pay that, change that immediately. It, it'll invigorate everything around that organization, especially, especially if the plan is to keep them in Oakland, start negotiating uh, real estate for a new stadium, and actually revamp the current process versus starting over and hoping for the best. So back to that, that rumor and, and the threads I've been reading. That's why I'm rooting for that version of it. Because I think, and we've seen this in basketball, right? Rich owner, male or female comes in, ignites everything with A, money, with B, energy, with C, decision, actual quick decision-making. Let's not just run the process out. Let's get a plan. Let's get a GM that understands how to do this and get this thing going. Oakland needs a lot of that. And they need it to start from the top down. So it's not a corrupt like the Washington commanders, but the need for change is as demanding. And I would expect both those franchises to at least start to turn the corner if Oakland can figure out this ownership situation. Okay. I have launched a new series. I have not yet published. Um, I do have a, a new spottrack.com article live called question mark NFL contracts. I went through every single team and I identified one contract that for one reason or another scares me. So for instance, I mentioned Tremaine Edmonds with the Bears. Great player. He's 25 years old. Could be there for the next 10 years. Could be the center of that defense for the next 10 years. But 50 million fully guaranteed for that player. I, you know, Buffalo wasn't getting involved. The Bears did it because they're the Bears right now. Is that going to play out? We'll see. Obviously, Deshaun Watson's on this list. Obviously, you know, Cam Robinson suspended for PEDs is on this list. I've got Vaughn Miller on this list. I've got Daniel Jones on this list. I've got three or four quarterbacks. I got a couple of kickers. I've got a couple of players that were acquired via trade that I don't think are going to pan out. And uh, I got a couple of young rookies because A, they were the best option, right? Because I had to go through 50, 60 contracts. And in some cases, there are teams really not spending money that would warrant a concern with a contract. So mo maybe it's more about place on the roster or place they were drafted. I've got a couple of rookies on this list, but one player from every single team, a contract that carries at least some form of question mark heading into 2023 and my thoughts on why. That's live right now on spotrack.com. Here's what's coming. I pivoted from tiers. I was kind of sick of the tier stuff. I'm going through every single position and I've gone through three right now. And I'm basically running a journal for you and for me because it's a good way for me to recap the off season. I'm calling it the movement journal. 
a positional movement journal. Maybe it's an outline more than a journal, but I'm literally running team by team on a positional standpoint and breaking down everything that's happened. So for instance, with the quarterback position, if we just take Green Bay, okay, it's about everything that's happened at the quarterback position this offseason in chronological order, okay? Which if you had re-signing Danny Etling <laughs> as the number one option, you would be correct. That's the first thing the Green Bay did, okay? And what I'm doing is I'm labeling these things with projected outcomes. So Danny Etling is, has been resigned to compete for a reserve spot, the QB3 role, maybe a practice squad spot. They traded Aaron Rodgers to the Jets. They then extended Jordan Love. And they drafted Sean Clifford, who by, right, who, by the way, right now is the QB2 for Green Bay. Penn State's Sean Clifford is the option behind Jordan Love. So take what you want with that to the bank. Um, but that's the deal. I'm giving you guaranteed dollars, chronological outcomes of transactions, and my thoughts, a quick analysis point about where this is going to end up. So with the quarterback stuff, it's, it's sort of vanilla. All right. Many of these you'll remember. Some of these you won't care about. Um, you know, some of you may not, not, not remember that Pittsburgh re-signed Mason Rudolph and extended Mitchell Trubisky because that kind of got lost in the weeds the past couple of weeks here. But there are teams that have added a lot of depth. And by the way, with the announcement of the QB3 that you can bring up every single week on a Sunday as long as he's on your practice squad, I think we're going to see more movement here. So I may have to readdress this if teams like Green Bay want to add a veteran option that they can hold on the practice squad because that's possible now. There, you, there's no um, experience limit on the P squad. So for instance, Cam Newton can be on Green Bay's practice squad. Yada, yada. Carson Wentz can be on a practice squad and brought up for Sunday as a QB3. That's going to be a, a, a bit of a late swell in transactions at this position. When we get to the running back, and I have finished the running back piece, it's bonkersville. All right. And I'm basically saying if... If I project this player to be top three on the depth chart, they're competing for a starting role. And if I think they're four through eight on the depth chart, they're competing for a reserve role. So I'm just kind of prefacing you how I'm doing this. Uh, and I'm, I'd love your thoughts. If you think I should add, subtract um, to this kind of piece, and this might be an annual off-season recap piece for me. And maybe it's something we do with all these sports and go kind of position by position. With all these sports as a recap, a look back, we do this preceding free agency to give you you know, the best available players, what, the, what we think they might cost. And then we talk about a few of them, right? The big contracts and maybe some of the more surprising names, but then we leave a lot of it in the weeds. It's especially fantasy owners, right? And that's kind of where I'm thinking with this. It's going to matter. The fourth running back on the Philadelphia Eagles is going to matter because I think that's going to be Boston Scott. Okay. DeAndre Swift, Rashad Penny, Kenneth Gainwell, Boston Scott. The, the, it's going to happen. How many running backs got drafted you don't even know about, but they're going to be contributors, right? Third, fourth round players. Hell yeah. A couple of six rounders. They're going to play this year. All right. It's just the nature of that position. How many of these franchise tag players are actually going to sign their franchise tag? That's going to be a, a conversation with running backs. And I'll go on with wide receivers and tight ends, et cetera, down the line. So it's a big piece. It's a lot of work. It's a great way for me to recap in my brain, all these transactions and contracts I've been filing through for the past couple of months. But I think it's a nice way to to quickly establish yourself, like I said, from a fantasy perspective, from a divisional perspective, oh, I forgot that Leonard Fournette's even available, you know, that they released, that Tampa Bay released him and replaced him with Chias Edmonds for basically a vet minimum contract. 
all those things are going to be popping back into our heads with these little outlines. So that's uh, that's the big, big project I'm taking with me in June here from an NFL recap standpoint. I think it's going to, uh, I think it's going to affect some people because like I said, it's a, there's a fantasy aspect to it. There's a 90 man roster aspect to it. I'm, I'm mentioning UDFAs and uh, maybe highlighting some that have a chance to stick as we've seen more and more of that every year. But uh, it's kind of a nice way to look back and project where we're headed as uh, the 90 man roster cuts get to us in about what, about a month here, eh, six weeks. We got a long summer ahead of us here. So looking back a little bit, but it's a, it's a big, big outline piece broken down by position. And that will start to hit the spytrat.com waves probably midweek. So look out for that. Okay. Good luck to those betting the Miami Heat. I think it's a good plus 225 bet right now because that team is not going away and they will not get outcoached for Scott Allen. My name is Mike Gennetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spytrack Podcast.